Now, I absolutely, with all of my heart, with every fiber that is in my body, I reject baptismal regeneration. That baptism helps save you or somehow confers to you the benefits of the cross. And I reject it because if someone preaches that, they are guilty of preaching a different gospel. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans and in chapter 4, which is known as the Great Faith Chapter, because faith is mentioned over 16 times there. Romans is a letter written to believers and is intended to make sure its readers understand the gospel profoundly so that they in turn can explain it to others. Today we begin a look at the religion that God hates. In our passage from Romans 4 verses 9 to 17, we find the Apostle Paul warning against putting one's faith in a symbol of salvation rather than in the object. In other words, rather than believing in the true risen Savior and Messiah Jesus Christ, many Jews professing to be born-again believers were in actuality relying on their circumcision. Now, if I just wanted to preach the highlights of Romans, I promise I would skip the text that we're going to examine today. And that's where the church in America has arrived at. We uh, preach passages that just seem usable. But I want to tell you, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is all equally relevant. Some is harder to understand than other portions, but I want to say that Leviticus 3.16 is no less inspired than John 3.16. And God gave us the difficult verses that are before us that represent not the milk of the Word, but the meat of the Word. And as a pastor every week, I hope to feed brand new Christians and give them something they can take with, and I want to feed mature Christians and everyone in between. So if you don't get all that I'm going to say today, don't worry about it. But sometimes we need to go home and apply ourselves. That's why I ask you to take notes. And I see people do that, and I assume you're taking notes because you have a hunger for the things of God. You're not here just to be entertained, but you want to learn what the Scripture says, that you can become strong and mature in the person that God's created you to be in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible predicts that as we move to the end of the age, people will not become less religious, but more religious. When Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy, he said, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant. And then he goes on to say, holding to a form of godliness, although they denied its power. They're religious, but they're not born twice. They're lost. And we live in a day where religion is widespread. And even in the evangelical church, as we call it here in America, a term historically that was used to refer to the Bible-believing Christians, we feel like we've made tremendous inroads. We have Christian radio, television. We have uh, more conferences than we've ever had, more mega churches than we've ever had, more bestsellers, more seminars. I mean, all over the place. But I think George Gallup was correct in his assessment when he said, never before in the history of America has the church made so many inroads while at the same time making so little difference. And how is it? that those who've been raised in Bible-believing churches statistically is no different in terms of divorce, abortion, drug abuse, alcohol, and so many other things that we could count. 
We, as evangelicals, as Bible-believing Christians, used to ask the world to repent. But we need to repent because we live in a day where there's a lot of external religion, religion that God hates. And as you can see, that's the title of this morning's message. Now, there's religion that God loves. The Apostle James speaks of pure religion that is expressed in undefiled acts as seen in your care for widows and orphans, people who can't give you anything in return. Whereas false religion, by contrast, caters to those who can pay them. Pure religion makes a difference on the inside. That's James's point, not that you need to go out and start an orphan ministry, though God may call you to that. His point is, is that true religion makes a difference on the inside. False religion only makes a difference on the outside. Now, before I read the text, let me remind you of the flow of thought. In 1 through 8, he looks at Abraham and David, and he demonstrates that they were saved apart from works. In 9 through 12, he teaches us that Abraham was not saved by circumcision. In 13 through 17, he reminds us that he was not saved on the basis of his obedience to the law. And then he concludes the chapter in verses 18 through 25 to show us that he was saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, this morning, we're going to focus on verses 9 through 17a. But to give us a running start, let's begin by reading in verse 4. Follow along. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what, as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only, uh, who are, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow on the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Now remember, Romans 4 is linked to Romans chapter 3. Paul lived in a century where most Jews and Gentiles thought that they could become righteous by the things that they do. And so what Paul taught, that a man was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, sounded like a new kind of thing. And he has already reminded them from verse 21, no, it's not new. 
apart from the law, God's righteousness. And if you want to go to heaven, you need to be as righteous as God. And that's not a righteousness you can earn. It's only one that you can receive. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, made known, manifested. How? Through the law and the prophets. Paul is saying, what I am teaching is not something new. It is something old. It's in the law and the prophets. It's in the Old Testament. And so when he walks us through that paragraph of Scripture, the height of it comes in verse 28, if you remember. For we maintain that a man is justified, declared righteous, saved, how? By faith, apart from works of the law. Now, to prove that, Paul now illustrates it in Romans chapter 4. And he begins by asking a question concerning Abraham. He draws out two people, Abraham, the most famous of all the patriarchs, and David, the most famous of all the kings. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? What did Abraham discover? And so he says, and by the way, he would be a good person to ask because Abraham is called the friend of God. So if you want to become God's friend like Abraham was God's friend, then you want to be saved the way Abraham was saved. For if Abraham, he says, was justified by works, he has something to glory, something to boast about. But he quickly adds, not before God. For what does the scripture say? What does the Bible teach? For that's all that matters. And he quotes Genesis 15 as his authority. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him, credited to him as righteousness. And we carefully studied that verse in its historical context. That Abraham was given a promise concerning the Messiah. That he would become the father of many nations and all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. How is that possible? Because through Abraham's offspring would come the seed, the Messiah himself, who would die for the whole world. That anyone who believes can become a believer like Abraham. So then he applies the case of Abraham. Remember, Abraham was saved not by works, but by his faith in a promise that God was going to fulfill concerning Christ. And we studied the New Testament commentary on that in Galatians 3. So he applies it. Now to the one who works, his rage, wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. And then he contrasts it. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And so God saves the person who does not say, I am good enough. God saves the person who does not work, who in essence says, I am ungodly. Now, King David illustrates the opposite. Because if Abraham was a great man of great works, David was indeed a great sinner. A man guilty of adultery, a man guilty of causing someone to stumble through drunkenness, a man guilty not just of murder, but multiple murders. And so he looks at David, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And so those two words, just as, tells me he's going to make a comparison, that there's a comparison between Abraham and David. Namely, that both men were saved apart from works, apart from anything that they could do. 
And so when he says David also speaks, he introduces you to the fact that he's about ready to quote David. He's about ready to quote the Old Testament. And you can see from the typeset here in the New American Standard that it is an Old Testament quote from Psalm 32. And last week we carefully examined the context of Psalm 32 that that Psalm, like Psalm 51, is one of the great confessional Psalms of David done in the context of having committed murder and adultery. And if you remember the Old Testament law, those were willful sins and there was no Old Testament sacrifice available for such sins. And so he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. It was a willful sin and the only thing that David could expect was to be stoned even as the king. But God sends Nathan the prophet and he told him that parable and if you remember, he said, you're the man. And David responds and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. And he clung to a promise. Now remember, we learn that David was a prophet. And like all the prophets of God, be they Abel or Zechariah and everyone in between, as Peter says in Acts chapter 10, all the prophets of God proclaim Messiah that through his death and resurrection we could be saved. So don't think for a moment that people in the old covenant were saved a different way than we are. They were looking forward to the cross. We look back at the cross. And so he says in verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, a Jew reading that would say, oh, wait a minute. Are you telling me that Abraham and David were saved totally by grace apart from works? What about circumcision, Paul? And so he is going to begin to deal with the externals of religion. If you want to use your note-taking outline first in verses 9 through 12, he's going to speak to us about the folly of trusting in religious rights. The folly of trusting in religious rights. Now, if you're here on my message in Romans 2, I did a whole sermon on circumcision. And I know it's a rather awkward subject in our day, especially among Gentiles, because in our day, circumcision is largely done for simply hygienic reasons. But to a Jew, it was a religious right. And to a Jew, even today, at least amongst the Orthodox Jews, it's not done by a physician. It's done by the rabbi on the eighth day. And so here in verses 9 through 12, Paul demonstrates that Abraham was first saved and then after he was saved, he was circumcised. And so he asks a number of questions here, as you can see in verses 9 and 10, because he's anticipating some of the questions that Jews would ask. If Abraham is saved by faith alone, then why did God demand that he and his descendants be circumcised? And we saw that Paul was using a first century uh, philosophical argument called diatribe. Remember that from the earlier chapters? Where like a teacher, he would anticipate the questions of his objectors and then he would answer them. And again, he's doing this to help those of us who are saved to be able to have a stronger argument that it is by grace alone through faith alone. Many times a Christian can say that, but they can't reason it very well. Well, Paul reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus was the way of salvation. And so Paul, being an unconverted Pharisee at one time, used many of these same 
arguments. And so first he teaches that religious rights cannot confer righteousness. Religious rights cannot confer righteousness. Now, please understand, this is not what God has said. This is what God is saying. And while some of the circumstances may have changed, there are timeless principles for us here that I don't want us to to miss. Now, most Jews in Paul's day were convinced that this unique mark that had really become nothing more than a tattoo almost meant that they were accepted by God. And so he asked in verse 9, is this blessing, this blessing of having been saved, as he's described concerning David and having concerned Abraham, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So Paul's first question concerning Abraham came in verse 1. Was he saved by works or was he saved by faith? In this question, he asks whether the blessing of being saved is available for the circumcised only, namely the Jew, which would require a Gentile to be circumcised, to become a Jew in a religious sense before he could be saved. Is this blessing for the circumcised, namely the Jew, or is it for the uncircumcised also, meaning the Gentile? And this is an important question as it relates to Abraham, the friend of God, the one who is called in verse 11, the father of all who believe. It's an important question then, and it's an important question now. In essence, he's saying, did Abraham submit to circumcision and so therefore earn salvation? Or did Abraham first get saved and then get circumcised, which is it? What was the order of the events? And this is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to him as righteousness. Where's that quote from? If you remember, it's from Genesis 15, 6. It's the shorter version of what he gave in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He believed what God had said concerning the seed, the Savior, the Messiah of the world. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And so he asked two more questions in verse 10. How then was it this salvation, this blessing credited while he was uncircumcised or circumcised? He was trying to get them to think as he is us. Now notice he says in verse 9, for we say Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or here in the shorter uh, text, faith was credited to him as righteousness. That was a common verse they could quote. That's what we say. That's what we all quote. It's much like John 3.16. Most people today know it, at least the older generation. Now, not everyone in the younger generation knows what the verse means, but at least in the older generation. I have had drunks quote it to me. But just because someone can quote it doesn't mean that they understand it. And John 3.16 comes alive if we understand John 3.14 and 15 in the illustration that Jesus draws from Numbers 21 as he helps Nicodemus to understand how it is that we are born again. And so Paul is getting in this thing. We quote this verse all the time. For we say faith was credited to him as righteousness. But how was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He answers, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Right above the words, he was circumcised. Just right above those words, Genesis 17. Now we know from Genesis chapter 17 that when Ishmael was 13 years old, 
which is if you follow the chronology carefully in those chapters, would make Abraham 99 years old. When Ishmael was 13 and Abraham was 99, God appeared to him and he gave him this sign, this symbol called circumcision. So Paul's argument is saying, when we as Jews often quote, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, Ishmael hadn't even yet been born. The friend of God had not even yet been circumcised. Now, according to Genesis 16, 16, Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And if you go back a chapter to Genesis 15, you discover that he was 85 years old when it says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So when you put it together, at 85, Paul is saying Abraham was saved. At 99, Abraham was circumcised. And there's 14 years separating Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. So Abraham had God's favor. It was reckoned to him as righteousness ever before he was circumcised. And so he wants you to understand that religious rites do not confer righteousness. Number two, point B on your outline. Religious rites do confirm righteousness. They do not confer righteousness, but they do confirm righteousness. Now, stay with me. This is complicated, and I didn't skip this passage. I believe we can get it this morning, but stay awake. Don't go out into the outer atmosphere and think about what you're going to do this afternoon. God wants you to get this. It has tremendous relevance for our lives today. We read here in verse 11, and he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while circumcised. Paul reminds us here in verse 11 that circumcision didn't save him. It was only the sign and it was the seal of what he had believed. And notice both descriptions because they're not the same. Circumcision is both the sign and it is the seal. Now, God said when he spoke to this man about circumcision initially in Genesis 17, he called circumcision the sign of the covenant. It was a sign that identified him, but it was also a seal that authenticated him. A sign points to something. That's what a sign does, whereas a seal, in essence, is uh, guaranteeing something. And I want you to think about the difference. We're going to say this morning, like circumcision, baptism is both a sign and a seal. Let me see if I can explain. I have a lot of diplomas hanging on my walls. If you go into my office, I, I didn't have them there for years, and then one of the brothers in the church, Ron Vogel, I said, you need to hang your diplomas up. I said, they've been sitting in a, a box since I, I had them for nearly 20 years. And he took them all, framed them all, and there they are on my wall. He said, it looks good as a pastor. I said, okay, there they are. Now, think about the words on the diplomas. And you've got some diplomas. The words on the diploma represent the sign. But on each of my diplomas, there's also a seal. And the seal authenticates What's there? Now, people today can manufacture their own diplomas, and people do that. Do you know that? They call themselves Dr. So-and-so, and and Dr. So-and-so isn't Dr. So-and-so, and and he's created a diploma, and he's used fancy printing and everything, but there's no seal. There's no seal authenticating it as something that is genuine. And so Paul wants us to understand that there is the sign, and, and there's a seal. Now, think about if I had a diploma on my wall that was blank, 
and all it had was the seal on it. What would it authenticate? Absolutely nothing. People all the time, they have the, a seal, but they don't have the sign. They say, I've been baptized, but they've never trusted Jesus as their Savior. That's like having a, a blank diploma with a seal on it. Now understand, there is a parallel between in our day, and this would be by way of application, between baptism and circumcision, and that both are really symbolic. In the early church understood this. They understood that, that baptism was simply our confession of faith. Peter says in Acts 2.38, for instance, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, in English, this verse is a challenge. It's not a challenge in Greek, and it's really not a challenge in most other languages of the world. Because most other languages of the world have enough words to use a different word than this word for. But in English, the word for can mean different things. It can mean because of or in order to. And some people read it in order to repent and let each of you be baptized in order to receive, in essence, the forgiveness of your sin. Uh, I, I was speaking to a man who said he was an elder of a large church in Savannah. And he told me that I was preaching less, a less than pure gospel. That I was in error because I did not teach my people that baptism was necessary in order to be saved, that I said it was simply a symbol, an emblem, and he quoted Acts 2.38 to substantiate his opinion. And very often, there's a denomination in our country, it's called the Christian denomination, so so-and-so Christian church. Doesn't always mean they're a member of that denomination, but there's a whole pool of churches across America that carry that emblem, and this is one of them just like the Church of Christ and Disciples of Christ. Now, there's exceptions to the rule, but very often these churches teach that baptism is necessary in order for you to be saved, that you receive the benefits of the cross of Christ only in if you are baptized. Therefore, if you are not baptized, you're not saved. By the way, the same teaching of the Judaizers in the first century. Read the book of Galatians. You read Galatians and you discover that they taught a man was saved by grace through faith by the blood of Christ. But you could only come in contact with the blood of Christ if you were circumcised. And so they were asking the, the, the Gentiles to be circumcised. Uh, there's a very popular book now that has hit evangelical bookstores across the nation that uh, a lot of Christians are reading. But it's written by a pastor who actually teaches baptism saves. Uh, let me um, just quote from his own doctrinal statement. He said, We believe the Bible teaches that one receives God's grace by putting faith in Christ, repenting of sin, confessing Christ, and being immersed into Christ, which in the doctrinal statement is a reference to baptism. And he quotes Acts 2.38 in Romans 6, which we're going to study, which has absolutely nothing to do with water baptism. It has everything to do with spirit baptism. And so this statement reflects what's known as baptismal regeneration. Now, I absolutely, with all of my heart, with every fiber that is in my body, I reject baptismal regeneration. That baptism helps save you or somehow confers to you the benefits of the cross. And I reject it because if someone preaches that, they are guilty of preaching a different gospel. Just as some religions today are saying one can be saved simply by being baptized, 
The Jews of Paul's day were trusting in their circumcision to be saved. And this is the type of religion that God hates. That's the name of the study from Romans chapter 4, and you can listen to it again using the Search the Scriptures app for Android and iOS devices, as well as online at searchthescriptures.org. Either way, when you land at our site, search for program ROM19, the religion that God hates. And while there, please consider a financial gift to Search the Scriptures to help support the ministry. Don't forget, Dr. Brogy is planning his next trip to Israel in May of 2022, and he wants you to come along. This will be an excellent opportunity to not only see and hear the sights and sounds of the Holy Land, but to have the Scriptures come alive as Pastor Carl teaches unique messages intended to accompany your various travels. Find out more at stsisraeltour.com. But act quickly, because the deadline to sign up is February 11th. Tomorrow we continue our look at the religion God hates. Join us then as we search the scriptures.